Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. We're going to do something special today, something a little bit different. We're going to talk about Iran with Senator Rand Paul. As you probably know by now, he has been approved or, or, or agreed to by President Trump to represent the United States in informal conversations with officials from Iran. Neoconservatives everywhere are going batshit crazy. That tells you that there's probably something important going on. We're going to talk to Senator Paul about what he's trying to accomplish, what an America first foreign policy is, and why we should talk to Iran before we start World War III. Sounds reasonable. Sounds rational. It's part of a project here at Free the People. We're trying to get people to appreciate the fact that Congress has abdicated its war powers, that we've been at war in Afghanistan for 18 years. There are actually young men going to war in Afghanistan who weren't born when we declared that war. Think about that for a second. Think about the trillions of dollars that we're spending. And President Trump has said some very rational things about this. He says that war hurts the economy. Yes, it does. Spending trillions of dollars that you don't have instead of investing in private businesses, investing in your, in your son's education, investing in other social problems, that hurts. But most important, and this is something that hopefully no one disputes, is people die in war. A lot of people die. A lot of young Americans, men and women who signed up to defend their country, are dying as we do these social experiments called regime change. I'm a fan of Frederick Hayek, as you probably know, and you probably need to chug right now because I'm going to quote Hayek, and that's a game here on Kibbe on Liberty. But Hayek talked about something called the fatal conceit, and he was talking about socialists that thought that they knew enough to redesign complex systems, economies, cultures from the top down. Think about the neocons and, and, and regime change. Think about the arrogance that says, if I take out that guy, suddenly all of the people of Iraq are going to embrace uh, liberal democracy and they're going to embrace capitalism and there's not going to be any problems anymore. How'd that work out? How did it work out in Libya? How is it going to work out if we do regime change in Iran? Well, there's a history here. The United States has been involved in Iran literally since the 1950s. And every step we have made has created a more unstable situation, a more radicalized breeding ground for terrorists and more enemies to the United States, to you and to me. So we're going to sit down with Rand. I think what he's doing, candidly, is heroic. His willingness to engage the president, his willingness to take on even those, those, those nasty neocons in the Trump administration, guys like John Bolton, that's something that somebody needs to do and I'm really glad that Rand is doing it. He, he, he had a candid conversation with us. Check it out. Uh, Senator Paul, Paul, thanks for joining us. Uh, there's a lot going on in Iran. There's this chorus of voices inside the Beltway clamoring for war. But I wanted to start by reading a quote uh, recently from President Donald Trump, and he, he seems pretty definitive. I'm not someone that wants to go to, into war because war hurts economies, war kills people most importantly. Don't kid yourself, you do have a military industrial complex. They do like war. I say, I want to bring our troops back home. 
the place went crazy. You have people here in Washington, they never want to leave, they always want to fight. I assume you agree with President Trump on that. Sounds like something I could have said. Yeah. Um, I just came from a group called uh, Turning Point USA. It's a bunch of young kids, high school kids that are big supporters of the president and gave them that exact message and they stood up and cheered. They uh, don't see that there's a purpose in the Afghan war, a reason why we're still there. The president agrees. Um, unfortunately, not everyone advising the president agrees, so it's a little bit of a struggle trying to get um, what the president says actually into policy, but I think he does believe that. Um, one of the things he said over and over again, I think he truly believes, is that the Iraq war was a geopolitical blunder of epic proportions, and he says that all the time. Um, and I think it does guide him, and I hope it guides him in thinking about whether or not we should be in a new war with Iran, and I think it does. Yeah, does he understand the, the, the relationship between regime change in Iraq and, and dealing with Iran today? I think, I think so, and I think if, you've, if you watch his comments in the last uh, couple of weeks, he's actually mentioned that we're not for regime change in Iran. He said that, we're not for regime change, because he's got people around him like Bolton who say, oh, um, we're for regime change in North Korea, Iran, you name the country, we're for regime change when you know, the world will be perfectly peaceful when we hand-select all the leaders for all the countries we don't like. That's Bolton, but that's not the president. The president really has a different position, and so I think he doesn't. But at the same time, he doesn't give a pass to Iran either, and there are problems. There are problems really on both sides. As you know, it's, uh, parents say it takes two to fight. War's kind of the same way for the most part. Um, we've been interrupting, you know, the British stopped one of their ships. They've stopped one of the British ships. Um, you know, we've had drones and ships up against their shore. They shot down a drone. But the president, I think, really showed restraint when after the drone was shot down by Iran in um, you know, deciding not to escalate it, not to get into a situation where we dropped several missiles on different military installations and all of a sudden had Iranian deaths. So I think that was uh, probably one of the president's best moments, actually. So you have been having conversations with President Trump, and, and he publicly said that he, he signed off on on your communicating with Iranian officials in, in hopes of averting war. What can you tell us about that, and, and what can you tell, tell us about what you're trying to accomplish there? Um, absolutely nothing. I would have to kill you if I told you. So <laughs> this is top secret, man. Would it be a secret if I told you? So this could be on? the last yeah, video this, this that I ever be, do. This is your last interview ever. Yeah. No, I think it, I can talk more in general terms about you know what our goals are with diplomacy and what we should be talking about. I think that uh, the Iranians, as evidenced by the Iran agreement that we had, are willing to limit their uh, nuclear enrichment and really are willing to talk about never having a nuclear weapon. I think they really are in that place, and we could get to a place where I think there could be an agreement. The more difficult aspect, I think, is the ballistic missile agreement. That wasn't part of the Iran agreement. And the president and many people have said that was the big flaw in the agreement. They want a ballistic missile treaty agreement. The problem is, is you have to understand from Iran's perspective why they develop ballistic missiles. They do because they have regional rivals. Saudi Arabia and Israel basically are armed to the teeth, and Iran sees both of them as rivals, and Iran says, well, that would be like unconditional surrender just to have, it be like saying we don't want to have an air force and we're not going to have missiles as a deterrent. So I think there is an opportunity. But our side needs to recognize that I think Iran will only negotiate on ballistic missiles if Saudi Arabia came to the table and said, you know what, there's too many weapons all over the Middle East, won't we all talk about lowering and ratcheting down? That I don't think our side is ready to, to discuss, and I'm not sure Saudi Arabia is ready to, and Saudi Arabia probably wouldn't without some pressure. And I think 
part of the mistake we're making now is by continuing, there was no interruption of the arms flow to Saudi Arabia after they killed the dissident uh, Khashoggi. I think had there been, we might have been able to say, you know what, you only get your arms sales, we're only going to continue to help you with your, with your defense and military capabilities if you're willing to sit down at the table with Iran. We could have actually used our leverage on the arms trade to push Saudi Arabia towards it. We still could, but that would be a shift in where our policy is headed. That's the only way I see a ballistic missile treaty ever coming. If our position remains that you have to give up all enrichment, you have to have a ballistic missile treaty, and you have to take the you know bend the knee to uh, Great America, there's not ever going to be an agreement. And even though we can defeat Iran in any medical, any military battle, I think they will choose simply to uh, wait us out, have skirmishes here and there, and uh, try to defend their pride as a nation. I hope there's another way, but I. I that is one alternative, is that we just lead to more and more conflict with them. You've been both critical of the original Obama administration uh, Iranian deal with the big upfront payout of money, but also critical of, of, of the, the administration's decision to pull out. Explain that position. The president, every time you hear him talk, is very, very critical of the money being given up front. And I was critical also for, for several years as the agreement was coming, in the sense that I think if you had parsed the money out slower over a long period of time, it's your one carrot that you can draw back if there's not compliance. But that being said, all of the international agencies that uh, examine for atomic weapons and enrichment have said that Iran has complied you know, with the nuclear agreement. The irony is now we, we pull out of the agreement and then we're mad because Iran is now enriching above the agreement. It's like, well, we're no longer in the agreement. We sort of breached the agreement. And um, they also, as we've ratcheted up um, sanctions, they really do see it as economic warfare. You know? And it would be sort of like telling me, you know, if you're a grocery store owner and you sell groceries and I surround your store and say you can't sell any groceries, you might take offense to that. You might think that I'm acting in an aggressive or warlike manner against your grocery store. That's essentially what we're doing. The old sanctions used to allow quite a bit of oil to go out to China, India, Japan, and South Korea. The new sanctions are trying to squeeze that to zero. And I thought a year or two ago they won't be that effective and Iran will still be able to sell the oil. I think they are being effective. But I think we're going to have the opposite effect. Instead of driving them to negotiation, we may drive them into military uh, confrontation. And so right now, every evidence is the sanctions, as they get worse, are driving us towards more military confrontation instead of saying, oh, well, we're sorry, now we want to talk. So there has to be somehow on our side the ability to understand that we have to give up something. We have to give up some sanctions in order to get some behavior change. That's sort of a, the, the carrot we have is relief of sanctions. But if we say we're not giving up any sanctions until they do everything we want, it's sort of an unrealistic ask, and we're never going to get any progress. What's your, I mean, what's your broader view on economic sanctions as a foreign policy tool? Because I, I, for instance, have criticized sanctions on Cuba forever, right. and yet right. we still have and a Castro <laughs> regime. Cuba is a good example of them not working, and uh, it's getting crazier and crazier. There's a whole segment of people up here who believe sanction it. It's sort of like the old, what was the Reagan saying about if it moves, regulate it, if it stops, tax it, you know, the, the whole idea that there's always an answer through taxation or regulation. It's the same with sanctioning. We have a bill that will be coming up tomorrow in the Foreign Relations Committee, unless we stymie it, which we're going to try to, is uh, that will sanction Europe. It's going to sanction Switzerland. Switzerland's been neutral in two world wars. We're going to sanction because they're helping to build the pipeline between Russia and Germany. 
And I'm in the minority, but I actually think uh, Germany and Russia trading oil and money back and forth is a good thing. Um, I think if the Germany's dependent on Russian oil and Russian oil is dependent on German do- German euros, um, makes them less likely to fight, I would think. I think the trade in general makes you less likely to fight. But there's going to be, a, 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 and it probably will pass, unfortunately, it as sanctions on everybody helping to build the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline, but include Switzerland, Austria, Germany, uh, Holland, Royal Dutch uh, Shell, you know, which has 100,000 workers in America probably. All of those super belligerent countries. Exactly. You know, Holland really needs sanctions. You know, we're having such a tough time with Holland. But that's the craziness is they're not blinking an eye. Now, they think they're hurting Russia, but they're actually sanctioning European allies. It's it's a terrible, awful, rotten, no-good bill, and yet we're worried it might pass. So, like, in Cuba, the dynamic, and I think this is true in Iran, is that the, the people in power, the people with, with political clout, do not suffer under economic sanctions, but, but people get poor and people get hungry. Right. A good example of that is to look at Venezuela. Uh, Maduro gets fatter and fatter. He probably wears, like, a size 68 suit by now. I mean, he's enormous. And yet the average person in Venezuela has lost 20 pounds. Not by trying, because of lack of food. They're eating their pets in Venezuela. That's how desperate it is. The economic controls, the price controls are devastating and have devastated that economy. I think I saw the other day like 230,000% inflation. I don't even know. That's almost too big to calculate. And uh, yeah, Maduro gets fatter and fatter. His generals are well-fed. And it's been the hard part about getting generals to defect. There's a small amount of food and small amount of money, but it's all going to the president and his cronies. People talk about the top 1% in our country. At least it's somewhat based on merit. The top 1% in uh, Venezuela is based on fidelity to the dictator. So I started off talking about the chorus of, of voices clamoring for war with Iran. It's, this, it's the same voices that have been clamoring for all of these endless wars since 9-11. Um, but they would say that you're being used, that you're being manipulated by, by the Iranians and that you'll, right. you'll, you'll help them in their propaganda campaign. How do you respond to that? You know, these are the same group of people who've been misguided since the time of Reagan. You know, they were all criticized Reagan for talking to Gorbachev. Um, I call them diplomatic isolationists. You know, they always want to call people on, you know, the non-intervention side of things. They want to hurl the word, word isolationist at us. But really, they're the ones that want to dip, be diplomatically isolation, isolated. I don't accept anything that either Iran, North Korea, or Russia says at face value. I accept it as they're saying it from their point of view and their their point of view of their national interest, and that it sometimes probably is being is deceptive and deceitful. And we do the same thing. We say things in our own national interest. But I'll give you an example of the, the naivete on the other side. We were in a committee hearing, and one of the Republican senators was arguing, and he says, I don't care what Tehran thinks. He was arguing for more sanctions, and it's like, I raised my hand, I said, well, if you don't care what they think, I thought you were putting the sanctions on to change their behavior. If you don't know what their behavior is, or at least think what their behavior is and what their opinion is and how they react to the sanctions, then you're not really doing your job here. You know, what are the sanctions supposed to do? Change their behavior. Hayek might call that a fatal conceit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But that's what we're fighting up here, and... It's a, it's a very, very small minority of uh, people who, who get it up here, you know, who um, really think that either sanctions or war is not the answer. I mean, we got people clamoring for war. I mean, people just blasting the president, saying he should have 
bomb the crap out of Tehran, you know, that we should just start unleashing thousands of bombs on Tehran, and they have no concern at all for the lives that will be lost. And not only our lives, thousands of Americans, and we will win a war. We can win any war. So, but, you know, are we willing to send 5,000 American kids to die and kill a couple hundred thousand Iranians to, to show that we are the mightiest and can tell people what to do? And in the end, it'll be worse, because in the end, we'll topple that government, and who knows what replaces it, whether it's better or worse. But the history of the Middle East is we don't tend to find Thomas Jefferson as the next leader. We tend to find someone equally as bad or worse. So you got to get going. I know you've, you're talking to a lot of people right now, but let's, let's sort of set a baseline. Um, I quoted President Trump, and, and you, in, in a lot of ways, have endorsed what he calls an America first foreign policy. Give us those principles. Is that, is that a baseline for, for what the Republican Party should be? Well, from my perspective, I would say that all foreign policy should be restrained, constitutional, restrained and bounded basically by the rules of the Constitution, and that really foreign policy should be uh, not a geopolitical chess game, although sometimes it is, but it shouldn't be predominantly that. It should be concerned about the individual and the people who have to go. I have three nephews who serve in the military, and when I think about whether we should go to war, whether we should send them to Iran, I think, well, that's my nephew. He was at my house last week playing with my kids, and it's like, uh, you know, do I want to send him to war? Is it enough of a value that I'm willing to risk my nephew? And I don't think enough people look at it in a personal way, at least uh, people up here. My dad used to say, yeah, we should have a draft, but the first people that should serve on the very front lines of every war should be the, the sons and daughters of congressmen and senators, and then maybe we'd have less war. Yeah. I, I mean, that feels like, like an emotional standard. And, you know, some progressives have argued that that's why we need to bring the draft back. I don't, I don't support that, but, the, right. but Trump has been very clear about the human cost of war. Yeah, I think so, and I think I think he gets it, and uh, I think the people are misguided wanting to bring the draft back. It is true that the war is only being fought by a small segment of our public, but it's also a volunteer army. There's something very noble, or makes makes war less bad to think that people actually are volunteering and do have a choice in what they do. But the military, while there's a choice in joining, once you've joined, there's no choice in speaking out. But I think when you do talk to them, and I talk to a lot of people in the military, we have two bases in Kentucky. When I talk to folks in the military, the, the, the responses I get back are much more thoughtful about war than you get here in Washington because they're fighting the war. Some of them have been back eight, nine times to Afghanistan. Some of them have teenage children at home and families that are trying to juggle back and forth. And uh, they're not as excited about going to a war when no general can explain any longer what the purpose of the war in Afghanistan is. There's not a general around that can't. We've got to stay because if we leave, you know, they'll take, you know, we've got to fight them over there, we'll fight them over here, all these platitudes. But none of it makes any sense anymore. And there are so many playgrounds for terrorists to arise in. It's like, oh, if we stay in Afghanistan, there won't be any terrorism. Well, why don't they go to Libya? Or why don't they go to Yemen? Or why don't they go to any other, you know, misbegotten places that are consumed by war? Thank you, Senator Paul. Thank you. So there it was. I hope you agree with me that that Rand Paul is, is doing yeoman's work, trying to get Washington, D.C., the swamp, as we call it today, back on track with, with a less interventionist approach to foreign policy. If you want to know more about this, go to freethepeople.org. We've produced a number of documentaries, most recently State of War, that explain how it is that Congress has abdicated its authority, explain the history of forever war since 9-11 and what you and I can do about it, please go to freethepeople.org and check out some of this other video content. We gotta learn more, we gotta get involved, we have to stay engaged.
Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.